This week on TechNado, we've got plain text passwords, we have Linux development crap, and we have an interview all the way from Israel. We have Daniela Pomander from CyberInt. That's all coming up next on TechNado. Welcome back to TechNado, everybody. I'm your host, Dom Pizzette, and today, well, Mr. Peter Van Reisdom is out of town celebrating some March Madness out in Las Vegas, as uh, as everyone so should. <laughs> so here to help me, I have not one but two uh, wonderful people who opted to You can't be talking take, about me. Take one for the team and jump in and do the podcast with me. We have Mr. Adam Gordon, who... Uh, uh, Adam, you haven't been on the show much, have you? I have not been on this show at all. I've done a lot of other yeah. podcast interviews for our sponsors and people we hang out with but not uh, not here at home so adam you know your first time on the technado thanks for joining us first time listener long time watcher <laughs> <laughs> and cherokee you have been on technado yeah. several times so our, our viewers should know and remember you uh hopefully <laughs> all the various catastrophes we had Who in the past <laughs> <laughs> Embarrassing. all right well we have a number of great news articles to jump into this week so without further ado we'll go ahead and jump into them I wanted to start with an interesting one that I, I kind of discounted when I first saw it. It said, uh, uh, this is coming at us from uh, McAfee's blog, Securing Tomorrow. Uh, and what the article says, basically, attackers are exploiting a WinRAR vulnerability. WinRAR. WinRAR, yeah. <laughs> you know, this vulnerability was actually announced at the end of last year, at the end of 2018. And at the time, I thought to myself, well, who still runs WinRAR? It, it, uh, <laughs> did you guys, either of you use it? Yes. Mm -hmm. I, Not I remember, recently. Like in the... 90s? Yeah, probably late right. 90s, early when you, 2000s. When you set up your MySpace page, yes. you needed to use WinRAR. <laughs> so it used to be great because the uh, the RAR archive format, which I can't remember what it stood for. It was some Russian thing. Uh, it used to be more like a higher compression than zip, but now thanks to more bandwidth, more storage, we don't really care about compression anymore. Uh, I didn't think a lot of people used it, but McAfee's actually found literally hundreds of exploits in the wild for this this vulnerability, which moves us into full-on exploit territory. So it's actually turning out to be a pretty big deal and something we need to worry about. I love the fact, you know, in, in looking at the article, that one of the, the hottest exploits that are being activated and clicked on through this vector uh, was Ariana Grande's article, or Ariana <laughs> Grande's uh, album, rather, being redistributed as a, essentially a RAR file that people are being asked to download. Uh, and then uh, it installs malware and, of course, upon restart, sets it up so it runs, you know, rooted underneath everything. But I just thought it was interesting, right? What does that say about her fans? That uh, <laughs> they're stupid and they should know better. But it also, I, I think, more I mean... importantly, is just interesting, right? Because, you know, everything that's old is new again. Yeah. And so when you yeah. think about the people that are probably clicking and downloading stuff in RAR in general, they may not realize, right, the impact of unpacking something. Because if you think about it today more broadly, it's not even when RAR that's old and, and why would we use it. It's the idea that when you download a zip file or almost any extension today, in a Windows environment anyway, a lot of times it's going to be uncompressed for you almost immediately or with minimal difficulty. You don't have to open a separate program unless you're doing something like 7-zip or something crazy. And as a result, it becomes almost a second nature thing. Like you just don't stop and think about the implications. Yep. And that's really, I think, the most dangerous aspect 
Yeah, and you know, it's not the RAR format that's the problem. It's the actual archiving utility. Right. And and what it would do is when you when you extracted an archive, it was actually allowed to write to the user startup folder. So the next time the system booted up, it would start up an application that was usually malware, uh, and you could get infected. No no elevated privileges were needed to pull off the attack. It was kind of bad news. If you were using like you mentioned seven zip, seven zip will open up RAR files. Uh, and if you're using that, then it's actually not a big deal. And I think most people have kind of moved beyond this file format. I think RAR was really just used for bootlegging stuff anyway. Um, right? Yeah, basically <laughs> like, you know, dumps and, uh, you know, stuff like that. I mean, I remember, you know, back in the day, it would be MP4s or MP3s. And mm -hmm. I remember back to MP minus one because I'm that old. But, you know, it, it was basically bootleg software. <laughs> when it was software. chiseled in stone. It was. You would get them and put them together as tablets. It was, it was a lot of fun. All right, well, let's move on to our next one. Uh, this one comes at us from the uh, the wonderful people over at Bleeping Computer. Uh, Google Photos bug exposed the location and time of your pictures. And I don't think I understand this one because your your location and all that stuff, it's embedded in your pictures anyway, right? So is this a bug that is somehow leaking the exon data? What, what's going on here? So it's, it's right, so essentially it's we're, well, metadata, let's just call it that, right? High-level data that, or data about data, but it's giving the ability to potentially, depending on, on what you do, for it to be extracted in one more ways. And then it could be used to geolocate you, potentially geolocate a secure facility, hypothetically, if somebody took a picture of it and maybe scrubbed the data from the picture, if there's remnant data there, we could still pull it up. This was a big deal, if you remember, and you, Don, may remember this. Eric, I don't know if you ever used this piece of software. You remember Network View in particular? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, you know, programs like this, which would have been essentially um, network mapping software, but with additional capabilities, okay. right, right, years ago. So one of the things I loved about software like that is that some of the more advanced programs would incorporate a feature that lets you do geolocation and pull down either sat data, satellite or early map data. This is before, you know, we had Waze, before we had Google Maps, before we had all this stuff where you could go out and find this stuff. You could actually pull the data in, cross-reference it on the network map, and then find the actual physical locations. We used to use this when we either did pen testing or vulnerability assessments years ago. So it was just kind of interesting because it brings back a lot of the concerns around this data that we, again, often overlook. People take these pictures, you don't think about all the metadata associated with them, and then it can be used against you. I tell you, I do appreciate it though. Sometimes when I, like I want to see all the photos from 2016, but I, it's not like I name them properly. I'm mean, half of mine are called IMG underscore blah blah blah. So you know that metadata helps me to be able to locate those photos. But there's a lot of extra stuff. You've heard about people over the years where they take a photo, uh, usually like an artsy photo. We'll just mm -hmm. call it artsy, yep. and then they edit it so that it's just a headshot. But it turns out the rest of the photo is still embedded in there, you know, and that kind of leaks out. So uh, never underestimate the dangers of the extra data in your pictures. So I guess the, the weakness here is that, is it when you share a photo or something, people are able to extract the metadata? They can, again, because the data travels with the uh, file, right? People don't realize it. And, and people do this all the time, right? You know, let me share a file and I'll send it to Cherokee. There's embedded metadata, who created the file, when it was created, what app was used, things like that. Uh, and while that data may not be important inside an organization, it could be very valuable from a red team perspective outside the organization. And we, we often just forget about that as we post things. Yeah, well, you know, it also seems that uh, uh, they're measuring the amount of time it takes to retrieve a photo 
to determine what servers it's coming from, which helps them to identify the country where it's stored. The, the geography, right? So the yeah, that that would that's even beyond metadata. Yeah. There, that's it is. But interestingly, so Side it, channel it sounds stuff. to be a yeah. lot worse than potentially could be, right? Because now this comes down to: Are we hosting these servers, right? physically in a location where the picture was taken. Often we're not, number one. Number two, are they cloud-based, and are they in a geography that may or may not have anything to do with the operational theater where the picture supposedly originated from? Or are they simply a local server in our business sitting literally in the same location, theoretically, or in our home, potentially, or somewhere like that? You know, you look at older versions of file-sharing technology and think about torrenting, which has been around forever, LimeWire, Kazaa, Morpheus, ShareBear, I could go on and on and wax poetic, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, if you think about how these services generically would work, they would split files up and then produce shards, what we would think of today as shards, and would then distribute the ability for you to download them based on where they were homed, right? And, and so this idea of using metadata to figure out location is not new. I mean, this is something that's been around forever, but putting it into the context and now finding personally identifiable information embedded in images really makes it, as you were suggesting, this makes it potentially really scary. Well, what particular, is it linked to a particular site? I mean, it says Google, but where were these images being, like, housed? This was stuff shared from Google Photos. Okay. Yeah. That, that, that was what tied it to Google. And and that, you know, at first when I looked at it, I was like, well, it's metadata. It doesn't really matter who hosts it. But if they're testing things like the server time, that that's what ties it into Google. Right, yeah. exactly. And, but to be fair and to be clear, this is not a Google-specific problem and a Google-only problem, right? I mean want to be clear about that. Google's not at the heart of this issue, nor are they the only one that suffer potentially from having this issue. Yep. Anybody who posts data in essentially any repository anywhere could have this happen. But you don't get the uh, the clicks when you call it, you know, Bob's photo site. Least right. Yeah, it's exactly. got to be bigger. Uh, you know, speaking of bigger, let's talk about a another vulnerability that came out for the Putty terminal utility. Now, I, I used to use Putty all the time. I, I've been a network administrator working with Cisco equipment. Putty was really handy on a Windows machine. On a Mac, on a Linux box, you don't need it. And even on Windows now, thanks to the Windows subsystem for Linux, I really don't use Putty anymore. But for years, it was my go-to tool for network administration. Uh, they had an exploit come out, uh, and that resulted in them doing a, a patch and an update, which might not sound like a big deal, but this is software that doesn't get updated very often. That was the question I asked Adam before the show. I was like, how long has it been since their last update? Uh, and it's been almost two years since any updates whatsoever have come up for Putty. It's, this one, this one was a pretty big. The one. same guy behind the update cycle for WinRAR, essentially, was, <laughs> he was very busy and just, you know, he didn't get to it. And Aww. just you see what happened, right? He was busy taking pictures. That was the whole. <laughs> was the whole thing. All right. Well, this one boiled down to basically uh, authentication prompt spoofing that uh, they were able to harvest uh, authentication information from it. Uh, so a patch has been created, has been pushed out. Uh, I know I said I don't really use Putty anymore, but there's probably many of you listeners out there that do. If you are an active Putty user, be sure to go out and download the latest one. And also, be careful when you download it. There's more than one website masquerading as the official Putty download site. That's not in this news article, but just real life. Uh, so <laughs> check that out uh, and be careful when you go. It's just you know, interestingly, and, and this will resonate, Cherokee, with you because you're doing all the Azure stuff, or most of it anyway, for us. Uh, but I used extensively when I did the Azure shows. I used mm -hmm. Putty as my client to yeah, no, I you know, had it on my system, to connect so in. I saw that. Um, and so it, you know, it, it is, even though we talk about it potentially in the Linux subsystem in Windows now, yes, you don't need it if you're running a fully updated Windows 10 stack, but yet old habits die hard, right? I would 
just default <laughs> to using putty as opposed to having to drill through all the things I have to do to get it working in Windows to connect into Azure to do administration. And a lot of people are probably doing that without even thinking about it. Yeah. I still use it for serial connectivity, like if I need a console into a device, which most of these attacks really wouldn't actually wouldn't I, don't, I don't think any of these for. attacks would apply to, yeah. but you know, but in my in my use case with Azure, for instance, absolutely that could lead to compromise of not just a tenant, but potentially multiple tenants, depending on how I manage. It's a good thing I use Don's prevent for whatever I connect to. <laughs> there we go. Azure. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. All right. Well, I started this episode with our security articles so we could get all the depressing stuff out of the way. And I saved the biggest whammo for yep. last here. Uh, unless you've been living under a rock, you've probably heard the headlines that Facebook stored hundreds of millions of user passwords in plain text for years. This comes from Krebs on Security, as also reported on by 18 million different websites. So uh, <laughs> it is. It's a big deal when a large organization, or really any organization, stores passwords in plain text. To hear that it was Facebook, that's that's kind of a big one. You know, it's it's it, it. Look, it's shocking on multiple levels for obvious reasons, but it also and and I'm so. It's so unfortunate I have to say this this way, but it also doesn't surprise me given all the bad news we've heard coming out of Facebook in the last I don't know at least eighteen months. I mean, it seems literally like the company is imploding from the inside out. Uh, be, not because of anything in particular, but just because of a series of really bad decisions that seem to point to the fact that senior management doesn't have an idea of what individuals are doing to implement yeah, security. I was going to say, this almost doesn't even seem like an accident. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I, I didn't mention it in the lead into this article, probably should have. Okay. Uh, it's not like this has been leaked out to the internet. It's no. not like it's internal, posted on Pastebin. As far as we know. It was <laughs> internal for employees to, to actually use, I, I guess, for troubleshooting or, I don't know, fun when they were bored. <laughs> Let's go with so, that. Blackmailing? So there were, uh, there were uh, a number of Facebook employees that had access to this resource that had all of these users. And it seemed to me that it goes all the way back to 2012, that it was the bulk of Facebook users, that their passwords are stored there in plain text. They have no indication that any employee used it for malicious purposes. But honestly, you can look and look up your account, Cherokee, and find your password and then say, all right, I'm not going to mess with Facebook. Well, let me go okay, try these other, other websites website. and see if you reuse the password somewhere. Right. So and of course, wouldn't. none of those employees ever got pissed off and left and decided they would take oh, any of that data with I'm them. Sure that never happened. Uh, and or, yeah, I mean, just my point is, as I was saying, right, I mean, you know, it's it's the small things and the decisions we make every day, as we know, that that lead to bigger issues. And it just seems like Facebook has been in the we're making really bad decision business decisions business for a long time. Um, I, I know it's one of the key go to social media outlets. I don't choose to participate in and I haven't ever really. Uh, and, I, and I have strong feelings about it for a number of reasons, but it's just. In today's risk-adverse world, it's amazing that a company this big and this impactful and this influential, and until recently this successful, can continue to act in such a, let's just call it what it is, boneheaded irresponsible. way, irresponsible yeah. way, and get away with it. And, and it seems like no matter what they do, people just don't seem to feel it's important enough to hold them accountable that they actually are demanding yeah. that there's change. You know, for startups, we usually make exceptions to these things. Oh, they were just getting started. When Slack had their breach, you know, they were in startup mode. Facebook was like that. You know, it was just a college kid creating this thing years, I mean, billions of dollars ago, right? But right. now they should have been able to step up. And to put some scope on this, uh, apparently it was searchable by uh, more than 20,000 Facebook employees. It contained between 200 and 600 million Facebook account credentials. 
And it says that the logs showed that at least 2,000 engineers and developers made approximately 9 million queries against this database. That's that's a lot. <laughs> that's a that's, lot. That's crazy. But they do say that, um, like, what, what is the quote in there? Something about the their our security is our utmost concern, or something. Oh, like that. of course. You know, yeah. your your privacy is very important to us. Uh, your your, your oh, personal information is very important yeah. to our advertisers. <laughs> so, yeah, somewhere I'm sure. Good they luck. Quote. But. Yep. So another little debacle there. Uh, and as always, uh, obviously don't reuse passwords anywhere if possible. That's probably the main lesson here. And uh, there's probably a don't use Facebook lesson in here as well. <laughs> I think that's the main lesson aside from not reusing passwords. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so anyhow, I, I will follow up a little more with some social media news later on. I'm saving for the end. But uh, I think that's about it for our security stuff. Let's move over to some fun things. Actually, this, this sort of borders on security. Uh, WordPress had a big announcement on the 15th that through various metric gathering services that may or may not be accurate, they now believe that they occupy one third of the top 10 million websites on the internet. In other words. And how many of those were created by Facebook internal employees with passwords <laughs> from Facebook users, I would wonder. But yeah. So 33.4% of the internet runs WordPress. And that just kind of should really hit home with everybody like how, how, uh, ubiquitous this platform is like everybody I, I say everybody well obviously a third of people run <laughs> wordpress and there, there's good and bad only the, to that. Only the cool third of <laughs> so the people that on the good side it means that a lot of people especially startups aren't running home-built systems that could potentially be vulnerable and weak that people are sharing resources but at the same time whenever a wordpress vulnerability comes out it affects a third of the planet so or that's outage good. or well, I, I guess the outage would depend on where it was hosted. And, yeah. um, you know, they mentioned, I think this is the platform, not the platform, but the actual software, it's not the, necessarily oh, yeah, the software. Okay. Yeah, it's the actual download and installable packages. But, the, the yeah, the big issue is really, you know, great. You're running on a third of all systems that are, ho are, are being used to host content. So when there's a vulnerability, a third of all systems hosting content are now going to become malware outlets. Yeah, I mean, look, yeah. nothing Which is, is secure. Be a larger target. Well, you're you're gonna just the the downside to being that big and that ubiquitous is you're that big and that ubiquitous. Right. So when something goes <laughs> right. wrong, it goes really, really wrong, very, very horribly, very quickly. The downside is always what we focus on. The upside, which I think is important to talk about, and you you mentioned it, is it's great that we've seen a migration away from homegrown shoestring solutions that are clearly going to be a lot more. Uh, potentially unstable. Let's even not worry about risk and malware and whatever else. Just, you know, unstable. I do want to be able to get to Facebook when I need to because I, I want to make sure my password's up to date when I change it <laughs> so that I, it propagates to every other website that I get into. But by the way, I'm not bitter like this in real life. It's just when I'm on the podcast that I'm this way. <laughs> he actually is. I, I really, I am, if you know anything about me. But, um, you know, it's just, I think it's great in some respects, right? Because this does speak to the idea that we can come up with a standardized platform that does really scale well. But I think it also speaks to the liability of standardization. And, you know, it's this ever-changing risk threat environment that we have to constantly be aware of. Yeah, now I was curious, and they don't mention it in the article, about uh, what the... Uh, predominant versions of WordPress are because with WordPress 4, they rolled out that API and that had some exploits and some weaknesses in it. It was a, a bit of a rough road uh, and not everybody has made that jump yet. Some people are still on the older uh, fork, or not fork, but I don't know, revision uh, of WordPress. So be curious to see how that, that uptake has gone. But 
It's a double-edged sword being popular. They, I mean, you can ask Microsoft that, right, with their operating systems. And so now we're seeing that with web platforms. All right, let's jump on to some actual fun things here. Uh, you know, uh, most WordPress servers out there are running on top of Linux. And one of the most popular Linux distributions out there is Debian. And if you ever thought to yourself, boy, I would like to be the project manager for Debian, the person calling the shots and setting the roadmap and all that. Now is your opportunity because they opened up a call for elections to elect a new project manager and uh, nobody, nobody up. <laughs> submitted their name. They went an entire week with no submissions whatsoever. Uh, they did uh, make a second call and now five or six people have actually applied. But obviously people are not chomping at the bit to become the project leader for Debian. Which... So this may be a crazy question, but if it's an open source piece of software, is there any kind of monetary, you know, reason some free facebook account <laughs> <laughs> i mean what, what's, Password the, of your what's choice. the motive well here? so that's a, that's a really good point and and one they bring up in the article is that uh if you're the debian project leader you're expected to do a lot of work you're expected to travel to various events you do a lot and it is 100 percent uncompensated they make no money whatsoever so normally they get a college kid because college kids haven't learned not to, to do to, work for free yeah. like the rest of us have. Uh, <laughs> and so, no, they, they've had a number of really good project leaders over the years. Uh, and it's usually somebody who's altruistic, who's trying to give back to the community and, and so on. Debian, it's a tough one because very few people actually run Debian. Right? Normally what will happen is like Ubuntu forks Debian, they create a, a release, and then Canonical makes a ton of money on support. Meanwhile, the Debian project just hopes to get some bug fixes back. Uh, it's a it's not a glorious position. There's not a lot of reward there, but they're actually doing something that makes a big, big difference. So uh, it's kind of sad to see something like this happen. Uh, and it's happened with a few different distros over the years. I was surprised to see it happen with Debian because it's so, so core to so many other projects. So are you going to run? Absolutely not. <laughs> it's okay. I, nominated, I thought that's what you were going to like have some announcement. I nominated announcement. Don. He doesn't know yet, but he's actually already been elected. So. That's right. I can barely do the he work. He leaves I get tomorrow for to around the world tour. <laughs> My my give to the community is this podcast right here. Oh, that's so. 10 nice distros in five days. That, that's <laughs> the, the name of the tour. All right. So uh, so anyhow, get out there and vote. Uh, well, you have to Elect be, yourself. Um, you could. You could. <laughs> you could stage a coup. All right. Let's uh, sticking with Linux. I mentioned in the uh, the little buzz clip for this episode of the podcast that we had some Linux crap. And the crap that I was talking about was right here with AFS, the Andrew file system. Uh, if you haven't heard of AFS, it's not that big of a deal, but it's really a, a file system that's designed to really handle large amounts of simultaneous write operations and do it very, very stably. There's many projects in the Mozilla platform that are really hoping this gets put into the mainline Linux kernel soon, uh, especially the the uh, uh, SQLite project. They're really pushing to get AFS done. Uh, it was submitted into the the 5.1 kernel release. Uh, it was actually, uh, the pull request was approved, and then Linus Torvalds took a look at it and immediately yanked it from the kernel, his quote, where is his quote? It's down down uh, there. Yeah. Here we go. Uh, <laughs> he said, the thing hasn't even seen a compiler, and when you do show the code to a compiler, said compiler correctly warns about AFS do silly unlink potentially returning an uninitialized variable. Uh, so uninitialized variables, that's a, a pretty easy thing to spot that if somebody had compiled even one time, it would have been found. Uh, so he didn't like that uh, and went on to say that uh, <laughs> he, he said he's yanking it. And uh, his, his actual quote here is, 
I'm no longer interested in totally untested new crap. It clearly wasn't ready before the merge window, and it clearly isn't ready now. So now, to be to be <laughs> totally fair to uh, to Linus, right? So it, it is a step back from his <laughs> earlier uh, commentary. Had this been a few years before he took his uh, much noted sabbatical last year, where he did stress release for about a year, I think, by himself <laughs> in a room. But you know, had had this been the earlier version of of his uh, commentary, you couldn't have put that on the air because it would have been nothing but expletives. This is the newer, more yes. sensitive Linus Torvalds. He, he has definitely uh, mellowed. <laughs> so, but anyhow, interesting to see. We'll, we'll have to see if AFS makes it in there, but it's a bit of a black eye for that project. We'll uh, see where it goes. <laughs> All right, sticking with Linux, SUSE Linux. SUSE Linux is an incredibly popular Linux operating system that honestly I have never used in production, not a single time, but don't take my word for it. Apparently it's wildly popular in Europe. A number of people tell me like, oh, Don, you got to try SUSE. Um, I'm always surprised at how it changes hands so often. So many companies have owned SUSE Linux over the years that uh, I can never keep track of who owns them at any given time. Well, now it's even harder, well, or less Hard? I don't know, depending, uh, because thanks to the help of uh, private investors, they've now acquired themselves, and SUSE is back to being an independent organization once more. So interesting. I love the fact though. it's the independent open source company, because there's no kind of confusion in that statement whatsoever. <laughs> I was just thinking, how does that work? It's one of know. these where it goes the exact opposite way from, well, let me do it in the window. It's like this, right? Because we're independent, yet we're open source, and yet we're a company, which blends the two together, but really shouldn't exist because those two things are like matter, antimatter. They can't exist in the same space at the same yeah. time. I mean, they were, they were owned by Novell for a while. Novell we did all this, know that is the kiss of death. And right? they did a crazy contract with Microsoft, yeah. where Microsoft was providing support for SUSE, which was weird. And then uh, I believe they were owned by either HP or Compaq or, or somebody in that ecosystem for a little while. Uh, they changed hands a few times, and now they are just part. They actually named the the uh, company, uh, but they were previously owned by Microfocus, uh, mm -hmm. you know, a large tech group there. Uh, and now they are independent again. Now I don't know what that's going to mean long term for SUSE. Uh, I do know that it's a very stable platform. If you want to run. I've made the comment of the show before. If you want to run Linux in a business, I normally recommend Red Hat. Red Hat is stable, secure, uh, but they're a U.S. company. SUSE is the German SUSE or the, the, the European Union equivalent. That's that. exactly right. So if you're an EU nation and you're GDPR, thinking about deploying, it makes yep. life a little bit easier. Plus, they have the most awesome um, mascot. Yeah, the little uh, chameleon. The chameleon, yeah, the green, the green Susa yeah. chameleon. It's just awesome. And they have cool plush toys. So, I mean, they're like my favorite distro just for that. Alone. Yeah, if you ever see them at conferences, you can grab a grab a plush. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, they are pretty cool. We might even have something like that one day. <laughs> we we may. That That's very true. <laughs> yes. Not a green plush toy, but a, yeah. Yeah, an IT we, Pro TV version of that. With pointy edges. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> not safe for children. Ow. <laughs> All right, uh, let's see. Let's move from the Linux world over to the Microsoft world, a little closer to, uh, to Cherokee specialization here. Uh, Microsoft did something really interesting this week and released Windows Defender browser extensions, not for Internet Explorer, which already had them, but for Chrome and Firefox, branching out to support all the major web browsers that are out there. So pretty neat. Uh, if you've never used it, their Windows Defender extension it runs right inside of the browser. It detects malicious websites. It blocks malicious scripts. It's kind of like anti-malware, but just for your browser, uh, which is a, a pretty interesting thing. And now they've rolled it out 
you can start using it today. You can. I like the fact if you look at the the subtext on the headline right there at the at the bottom. So it's gonna, you know, obviously it integrates, but yet all the untrusted crap that they want to open still gets th thrown over to Edge. <laughs> so I just think it's funny. Like, yeah, we're not gonna trust you to open this. We're just gonna go ahead and let it run in Edge. Is this like the smart screen uh, that was in Edge previously, or a little bit different? Well, this is the ability to extend it to the, uh, other the, browsers. The, the scanning capabilities and the smart screen-like functionality. There's also uh, ATP, advanced threat protection functionality. Okay. That exists as part of that, and that's all being integrated. Okay. Uh, yeah. And then there's also, although we're not putting it up, I think, but the, the other one, are you going to talk about? Yeah, you know, uh, so it, it, was, it was a little too late to get it in yeah. this episode, and Microsoft hasn't released it yet, but they've announced that Windows Defender, the actual anti-malware and antivirus, is going to be available for Mac OS soon. It is in preview. So it is available, but it's in preview right now, limited preview right now. Yeah, what I saw, I think, was just targeted to enterprise accounts, but it's supposed to be rolling out everywhere. Now, <clears throat> a lot of Mac users will say, why would I want antivirus on my Mac? It's perfectly safe. But I think we've seen time and time again that Macs can get viruses. I have no idea how effective Windows Defender will be on a Mac. We'll have to test it out. Uh, maybe it'll be a fun podcast one day. I'll yeah. install it and see if I can infect <laughs> a machine. Why sure. not? So, oh, so a lot of cool stuff. Microsoft is really, yeah, they are trying to get their hooks Embracing, in yeah, everywhere. I, open did, mind. You know, we reported a while back when they announced that Edge was going to come out using the Chrome rendering engine. Did that ever release Chromium. or is that still coming? I'm not sure. It is still coming. Still coming. All right, yeah. we'll, we'll see what happens there. At that point, it makes you wonder like why they would bother to hand the URLs back to Edge if it's all the same rendering engine. Well, Mozilla size their own, I guess. All right, let's see. What else is about Microsoft doing other stuff? Updating things. This can be my new stuff and things. <laughs> yeah. Microsoft updates stuff and things. Uh, over on ghacks.net, they reported the major features of Windows 10 version 1903. And, uh, you know, this is the March 2019 update that is about to start rolling out to the public. I don't believe it's actually started just yet. Uh, in fact, it'll probably be April before it really rolls out. Uh, we've reported on all these features over the last few months, but I thought it was good to have a nice little summary here right before they hit. The uh, two major features are the reserved storage for uh, to make sure that Windows is able to apply updates, so it's going to start blocking off a part of your hard drive, and also the Windows Sandbox feature, where you can run applications sandboxed in an environment so that your main machine doesn't get infected when you're unroaring files. Uh, well, welcome <laughs> back, virtual PC, because that's uh, basically what, what it is. Uh, what we're, well, you know, I, I, I'm being overly... Um, <laughs> critical, facetious. Uh, facetious, and just plain old fashioned, spiteful, you know, downright nasty, and spiteful. But you know, if you think about just the the idea of the technology, it's not Windows Virtual PC. Let me be clear before everybody revolts and says that's horrible. But it, the idea is basically going back to and hearkening to Windows Seven or Windows, uh, you know, Vista certainly, and Windows Eight, uh, where depending on how you chose to do it, you could run a hypervisor environment that's software based on top of your OS. That's not shocking by any means, uh, but at the time was radically different for Windows. And you could then, if you were smart, sandbox whatever you were doing as a result of that. So, you know, what's old is new again. I've, I've said that before, but it's interesting that we're taking this approach to be able to give people the ability to do stupid things in their environment and hopefully not hurt themselves. It would be a lot easier if we just gave out clubs with spikes and said, insert spike here. Right, because <laughs> you would take out and call the population very quickly, and then you wouldn't need these kind of overlays because the people that do this kind of stupid stuff would no longer be able to touch a computer. Right? <laughs> now, I haven't worked with the sandbox oh, feature I... yet. 
And, <laughs> I only had two cups of espresso today. I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm trying you to cut back. It's been, rough, it's been a rough week. What uh, can I, tell? I haven't worked with a sandbox software yet, but uh, I do know that a lot of the newer malware is sandbox aware. And so it can it tell and, and not yeah. execute. So you might think some, something is safe and then turn around and run it locally. Exactly. So I, I wonder how effective this will be. But uh, it's also worth noting that it is only available in the Pro and Enterprise editions of Windows 10. So when this update rolls out, you will not see it in Windows Home, although the storage reservation is. In it Windows is. Home. So it's also interesting when you think about the, the target audience for this, right? Because clearly they're going after the enterprise where there is a lot of stuff that you would worry about and want to protect. But also at the same time, you know, the concern with a feature like this is you enable it and then companies get complacent. Like, all right, well, we've got a sandbox. So that means we don't have to worry about whitelisting. We don't have to worry about blacklisting. We don't have to worry about application exceptions. We don't have to worry about this, 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 and this, and all this other stuff. And if they rely on this and malware is going to look at this and be either polymorphic, which will just simply change and it won't be effective, or it is going to be malware that is potentially virtualized aware. So it's going to just go to sleep until the application bubble disappears, uh, you know, we're back to the issue of do what I say, right? And if you don't do what I say and you do something different, we're probably going to have issues. And we know that, unfortunately, in corporate environments, people look for workarounds when things become key. Right? Yep. That's the issue. I remember when Windows Defender first rolled out uh, antivirus software as part of that, because Windows Defender was originally just anti-malware, mm -hmm. and then they introduced antivirus that a lot of people said, sweet, I don't have to pay for antivirus anymore, and they canceled their subscription, and, oh, it automatically updates with Windows updates, so I don't have to worry about updates. And then Wrong. a week or two later, their system would say, hey, we need to reboot for updates. Do you want to? And they would say, cancel. You know, and, and not thinking about, oh, I'm, I'm canceling my antivirus updates too. So, yeah, it, people can become complacent, and it's all it all comes down to the end user, a lot of this stuff. It does. Like all disabling right. the UAC. Oh, yeah. That was a big Vista thing. I love reading tutorials online where it's like, step one, we're going to disable UAC. Or uh, what's the other one? System integrity protection where they, you, know, you reboot into safe mode and you disable where Windows protects its own files. Yep. What that's called. Or data execution protection. Maybe. Shoot. Or you were talking about where it restores the uh, files from the hidden cache. Whenever yeah, you whack yeah, them. If you modify one. Yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, they call it bulletproofing in, unofficially. But yeah, basically, you've got the hidden cache for all the driver files. Mm -hmm. And it just restores them after malware takes them on or, or destroys them. Or they have them. the, you turn off the feature that requires uh, signed drivers. Like, yeah. you're going to yeah. install this driver. We need to turn off this other protection first. No, you don't. <laughs> no, you, need, you need to actually write software that doesn't require that to happen. Right. All right, let's see. We are we got just a couple more articles to get through here. Uh, our next one is <clears throat> Dropbox, the company who made their name by giving away service for free. Their original model was anybody can sign up for a free Dropbox account, and then for every friend you refer, you get a little more extra storage for free. Turned out to be a great business model. You know, they got tons and tons of clients. Uh, you know, we used to use them as our official storage for ITPO TV, uh, although not anymore. Now we use Office 365. And it's wonderful SharePoint that slowly is killing me each day. But, uh, but Dropbox <laughs> has made a slight change to their service, and they did this kind of quietly. They didn't do a big announcement. This is from Engadget. Uh, Dropbox limits free accounts to three linked devices. So if you have a laptop, desktop, and a phone, and then you try and add a tablet, screw you. <laughs> so if you want more than three linked devices, you have to sign up for a professional account, which is still a great deal. I think it's $150 for like two terabytes of storage uh, uh, per year. So it's not exorbitant, but, uh, but it is a change in their policy. So if you are a free user of Dropbox, you might need to step up. I wonder how they choose which device to unlink if you were already a free user. 
So uh, I did actually read a little more okay. on this where they said <laughs> that uh, if you've already got more than three, mm -hmm. then you're kind of grandfathered in, but you won't be able to add any more. Gotcha. If you go to add another one, they require you to unlink a previous device and they actually give you a list of the devices. Okay. okay. Yeah. I was going to say, I wonder how they make that executive decision, which device is like less important to you. Or something. So I was curious. In the bottle. Yeah. And I, I pulled up mine just to look at the list and you know, I, I restore from backup a lot. I, I use a lot of different devices. I go through cell phones, like underwear. <laughs> and, and so I looked at my list of devices and it's uh, Android device one, Android device two, Android device three. I'm like, well, which mm -hmm. one is it? So I, I wouldn't even know. I would just have to clear them all out and relink. Uh, but you know, it's, they've got to make money. They did an IPO, uh, which I don't actually remember how successful, well, I'm sure it was successful. Um, but you know, they raised capital. So now they have investors and so they need to show that they can make some money. They've got to create new ways to get people to move over to being professional accounts. And this is one of the ways. All right, let's jump over to my favorite article of the week. This is my favorite. This is from oh, wait, Ars no, Technica. Oh, I thought it was the other thing. Oh yeah, we'll get to that one in a minute. We'll say they got to save the best for last. I won't say it. Uh, Vladimir Putin signs sweeping internet censorship bills. So if you live in Russia, uh, or really, you know, any of the... The funny part is you live in Russia, you don't know about this because they censored the oh. internet. So there's no news of the fact that he actually did this. That's probably true. Who knows? So uh, anyhow, big, big, big <laughs> censorship bills being passed. And, uh, and they're pretty aggressive. Uh, basically, what it boils down to, and let me try and find the actual line here, uh, where they define what... Oh, here it is. Uh, so basically, if you do anything on the on the internet online that shows a, and we're going to quote here, clear disrespect for society, the state, the official state symbols of the Russian Federation, the constitution of the Russian Federation, and bodies exercising state power, hmm. then you will be held liable under this law. That's pretty ambiguous. It's big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you say anything bad. And I, I wonder if uh, this even includes things like, uh, you know, the reverse meme, the in Soviet Russia, uh, cheeseburger eats you, or yes. you know something like that. I just doesn't count. I'm like, so what happens jail if you do that? They throw you in an internment camp. <laughs> so they take uh, away your that. Facebook account. <laughs> you face uh, fines and jail time. It says fines can actually be as high as twenty three thousand dollars, which is uh, oddly enough one point five million rubles. So a little bit of a conversion craziness there, uh, and fifteen days of jail. But you know you do have to remember that it is. Uh, while they do have a constitution and they have elected offices, it is still very much a uh, yeah. It, it's an it's a, an authoritarian. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, they can really do whatever Machine. they want, uh, and this gives them a, a lot of power there. So anybody critical of the government, the state, uh, or just even the, the history of the nation uh, now faces some pretty strict restrictions. That strict restrictions. This is hard hitting journalism <laughs> coming that. at you. Strict restrictions. Um, I think this is a good reminder, though, for those of you who are living in a country where you have freedom of yeah, speech. Sometimes you just forget. I'd like, but I didn't even think about it, and I just kind of forget about it a lot of the time. I know, and I I make fun of well half the companies that we talk about on this podcast, and so you know if you make fun of the government, which I make fun of regularly, then uh, you could end up in jail. You know, in, in in other countries. So we we have a real gift in our freedom of speech. We do that. We then proceed to misuse on a daily basis. We do. All right, let's get to Cherokee's favorite article of the week. This is a hard hitter because she is so active with MySpace. And on CNET, they have reported that MySpace reportedly loses 50 million songs uploaded over 12 years. And the funny part about this is they didn't do this yesterday. This has happened over a period of time, and literally no one noticed until this week. It's shocking. What has Justin <laughs> been doing? 
<laughs> Does he still own it? I don't know. I know he uh, he invested heavily in it. Yeah. Justin Timberlake. Yeah. You got to put that. Uh, is he a Backstreet Boy or nine? What was he? Insync. Insync. So you got to put that Insync money somewhere. <laughs> uh, yeah, Vaughn is gonna kill me when I walk out of <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah, I don't know what band he's in. Uh, so anyhow, the, the the deal here is they were doing some server migrations. They were moving some things around, and at least as far back as February of last year, they lost a ton of data. Somebody did notice, and they opened a support ticket. And I think the CNET article includes this little bit in here. Uh, and basically, the, uh, the the tech support people at MySpace responded back saying that as a result of a server migration project, any photos, videos, and audio files that you uploaded more than three years ago may no longer be available on MySpace. And they indicated that they were working to restore the data, that it would come back eventually. Well, a few months went by. Finally, a year went by. And now they're no longer saying that they're trying to restore it. They're just saying, eh, the data's gone. And what I imagine happened is back at Face or Facebook, back at MySpace land, they probably had a meeting one day and said, oh, it's going to be really hard to restore this stuff. Uh, is it worth it? And everybody said, no. <laughs> and so that's it. The data's gone. Uh, but, you know, it is MySpace in this case. But it does kind of highlight when you trust cloud storage for things, you know, to hold on to your data. There's no guarantee they're going to hold on to your data, especially if it's somebody like MySpace that you don't pay. And I've seen this with Facebook where people have all their family photos in Facebook, but Facebook could lose that tomorrow. They wouldn't be liable. So it is actually, I think, an important distinction to make, right? You kind of hit on it, but let's, let's be clear. So <clears throat> when you're dealing with a, a free service or a service that is minimal in terms of its need to have you invest to use it, right? Dropbox would be a good example. It's quasi free quasi-pay-as-you-play service now because you get up to three devices. You know, there is no expectation, even if there is a service um, terms of service agreement, there's no way to hold the vendor accountable if this happens, right? No meaningful way. But if you are in a cloud platform that is pay-as-you-go, that does have terms of service that are backed by SLAs, and you're paying monthly, while ultimately there may be no better resolution, there are legal means that you can pursue in terms of having a contract and an SLA to potentially deal with this. And there are ways you can safeguard yourself, right? Uh, but yeah, when you put your stuff out there and just hope that because it's free, it will be there, you know, let's be honest, right? I mean, that's just unfortunately a, a fallacy. It doesn't work that way. And you have to know enough as a consumer to know that you need to back up your data in more than one way. It's unfortunate, right? For all these people, we were joking around about it before the show. I can't, I don't think I, if I ever, ever even went to MySpace. I certainly never had a MySpace site. Um, but, you know, I remember friends of mine that did. And, and certainly, there's a lot of really important stuff there, I'm sure, right? You have pictures, you have who knows what. And it's unfortunate, right, that a lot of people probably lost more than just music. I'm, I'm surprised you didn't have a MySpace page because I figured that's where you'd have all the stuff from your Eurythmics cover band. Uh, no, no, no. I, I, you know, I don't have it there. It's, it's published somewhere, but you have to hunt very, very long and hard for it. It's like, where's Waldo? Um, but, you know, it's just, it speaks, I think, more importantly to this idea that people, especially people that maybe don't do what we do for a living, right, that aren't as educated, that don't unfortunately know as much about, about how these things work. That they blindly trust. And, right. and especially if you're a young, budding lose. artist and you yeah. don't have the extra money to store all these files. And the first thing that comes to my mind is something like SoundCloud. I don't know if, I, I'm not too familiar with SoundCloud. Like, I don't know if it's a paid, but it seems like very similar to, to what MySpace was in the past. So, You know, um, 
let me give you an example. I, I did a little research before the show for once, and uh, <laughs> and I decided, hey, we, we use Office 365 here, so we have a lot of data. All of our email accounts are in Office 365, and I said, you know, let me pull up Microsoft's SLAs, and let's see what would happen if, if Microsoft decided tomorrow, they said, that's it, TechNado's gone too far, uh, insulting my space, and so they, uh, they pull the plug on our account and wipe out our mailboxes, right? So first off, in the agreement, it says they have the right to do that whenever they want. So just right off the bat, they can, they can on purpose delete everything we've got. And then what the SLA would cover is basically we'd get one month free credit and that's it. So even if they accidentally lost all our data and didn't mean it, all we would get is a refund on one month of service. You do, but you know this goes to a bigger issue, right? So we're we're operating as a business on the enterprise side, and we have a an E three or an E four agreement, maybe an E. We don't do E five. I think it's we have like, some some E five. All right, yeah. so we so so we we're have one over. of the higher level um, service uh, agreements, right, and contracts with Microsoft. We pay a fair amount of money, in other words, but there are other spaces you can negotiate into and there are for additional fees and not just with microsoft this could be with amazon with google and the google cloud and whoever you know it, you can negotiate and carve out these areas where you can for additional money guarantee certain levels of restorability certain levels of commitment to maintain that data after a period of outage uh, and typically although they don't publish it in a lot of their service level agreements and even many of the vendors don't publish it openly most of the cloud vendors will, uh, because of, let's say, lack of payment, will still cache your data for probably at least 30 days so that you can recover the account. So it's usually that you can restore that data, but it may not be that you have legal recourse to go into a court and sue to get your data back. But that doesn't mean you don't have options, right? Yeah. And on the business side, it is more restrictive in some respects, but you tend to have better recovery capabilities as a result. You know, for things like web applications, it's actually pretty easy to say, all right, I've got my web apps running in Microsoft Azure. I can actually have a mirrored environment over in Amazon you know, AWS. Yeah, fail through one cloud provider to another. Yeah, absolutely. But it's really hard with things like email. You know, I, I don't know that, I don't even know that you could do that, that I could say I have all my accounts set up in AWS and in Azure because your email is going to get delivered one way. That, that would be a more difficult thing to set up. It would be, yeah, it would be. What you can do is you have traditionally, we talked about this not before the episode, but in a separate conversation a few days ago, things like Postini, right? Where you have, or whatever the equivalent would be on your front end to do filtering. We, um, if I'm not mistaken, have an interesting discussion coming up, right? In our interview uh, about this kind of environment and potentially what this kind of a space looks like today in the cloud. It's such a really cool interview. If you want to stay tuned and listen to some really innovative takes on a data risk protection, right? This new category of technology. It's going to be a really cool conversation. But you know, the idea of being able to cache and forward, right, is really what these services provide. And you could set up a solution that does, much like DNS redirects will do, does allow you to do that. But keep in mind, that doesn't mean you're going to have all the historical data from that email cache. It means you're going to have everything that's come in that's sitting out in the cloud from a BCDR perspective that goes to another site. And I do this, and I talk about this with customers all the time. You can do that, but you're going to lose that historical artifact base, all the email, right, uh, that was there before, unless you actually go and work with that vendor to then port that restoration activity across the other platform. So you can get part of the way there, but you can't get the whole way there easy. You're right. It would be very challenging. Certainly something to think about, yeah. uh, especially as you design new solutions over the next few years. Cloud providers are great, but can't necessarily always be trusted. So. 
All right. Well, Adam, you did a great transition. We probably could have cut over right from there uh, <laughs> for our interview that is coming up. So we, uh, we're going to be interviewing um, one of the, uh, the vice president of marketing, actually, for CyberInt that provides all sorts of really cool stuff. But one of the things they do is, like Adam said, actually, several of the articles we talked about today, like the, the WinRAR exploit, uh, would actually be handled by uh, a lot of what they do because it would you know, transit through their systems. So we're going to get a chance to learn more about them in the interview. So definitely stay tuned for that. But as far as our news, that is it. We're going to take a quick break right here. And when we get back, we're going to see Daniela, I'm trying not to screw up her last name, uh, Palmater from Cyber In. Oh, I'll say it right in the interview, I promise. All right, stay tuned. We'll be back after this. I'm James Packer. I'm the general manager of Kirk ISS based in the Cayman Islands. I used IT Pro TV extensively in my last place. It grew very well, helped upskill the team. I had 110 engineers in the field and we had dozens of IT Pro accounts with the guys training. And last year alone, they passed over 40 certs by using the online training. I think I can safely say um, without IT Pro TV, I wouldn't be where I was today because I only got this job on the back of the qualifications I have. All right, everybody, welcome back to TechNado. I'm your host, Don Pazette, and we are back with an interview, as promised, with Daniela of CyberInt. Uh, we're going to get a chance to learn a little bit about her and her company and some of the crazy things that are going on over there, which is uh, really exciting to learn about. Uh, and before I butcher the whole intro, let's let's turn it over to Daniela because she can do a better job than me. Uh, first off, Daniela, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much, and I appreciate the opportunity to be here. And can you, you know, just to get us started here, tell us a little bit about yourself and your organization. Okay, so my name is Daniela Palmata, as you uh, very accurately pronounced it, <laughs> uh, which is quite challenging. I'm uh, the Vice President of Marketing for Cyberind. Um, this is, for me, uh, really the first role in cybersecurity. Before that, it's, it's my third role as uh, leading the marketing team for companies. But the first one in cybersecurity, my background is more from the telecom industry, from the IoT, Internet of Things industries. Um, and this is really, for me, uh, the first role in cybersecurity. I'm here for almost a year already. And I can tell you that the first thing that I did after one month of being in this company is remove my uh, Facebook <laughs> application. <laughs> so there are a lot of things that you learn when you uh, come into this industry. Um, primarily a lot really about the, the threats out there and how you can do so much more to protect one yourself. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned you, you came from that IoT background, and I think we're probably going to see a lot of that in 2019, that just the, the world of, of IoT security has broken open, and or, or I guess the, the world of no IoT security <laughs> has broken open. Uh, so we're, we're seeing a lot of people scrambling to try and fix that. And it's not just individuals, you know, people that are buying these things and sticking them in their houses. It's, it's companies, organizations, cities, governments. They're all kind of, uh, in a way, under siege with these things. Now, CyberInt yeah. uh, is a, a, a company and a solution that is working to try and fix that. So tell us, tell us a little bit about CyberInt and, and what that overall goal is. So CyberInt is um, it's a cybersecurity company, obviously. Um, we were founded in 2010, so we're a mature startup. Um, we're based in Israel. Uh, we're headquartered in Israel. We have offices um, in New York, in, in London, in Singapore, uh, in Manila, in the Philippines as well, um, and also in Panama. 
Um, and really, our when we were founded by three co-founders, they saw the opportunity in 2010 to change the paradigm of information security from uh, only protection and putting you know walls around your organization to actually looking outside the organization and trying to detect threats um, and monitor them before they actually become breaches. So that's one one change. And now we're on the cusp really of, of the second change in paradigm where there's, uh, with this huge digital transformation trend that's been uh, overtaking our world really and especially the IT world uh, since already I would say in the past five years, there's a need also to now converge between the digital, uh, the digital environment, the cybersecurity of the digital environment and the internal environment. And this is really what CyberInt is all about. It's really providing this platform that detects the threats, mitigates the, the threats and responds to incidents, um, whether they're uh, internal incidents or external activities and threats that we see, integrate them to provide this integrated insight with a very uh, automated machine learning uh, technology platform that provides really the the um, uh, most effective threat mitigation and incident response that uh, that companies need. All so, right, it, it, you know it, it's quite a mouthful. It, it's a lot. Uh, you did hit one of our uh, our favorite marketing buzzwords though with machine learning. Uh, <laughs> so, um, you know there are uh, let's let's break it down into smaller pieces so it's a little bit easier to grasp because I mean it, it's it's a it's a big threat landscape that's out there and there's a lot of different activities you can do to protect ourselves. So let's start with the threats, right? When when you say you know there are various attacks, there's various uh, ways that companies are are basically vulnerable. Uh, what type of attacks are you guys specifically addressing? So we're really focused on uh, companies who have a growing online activity or even started as online players. Uh, think of uh, Home Advisors, Angie's List. Uh, those are brands of IAC uh, Corporation in, in the States. Uh, think of ASOS, an online retailer. Um, they all really are uh, online businesses. Or if you think of uh, retailers who are going through a digital transformation to uh, really interact with their customers in the online world, so there's a growing trend to move to the online digital environment. And so those interactions with customers, whether it's on a web application, on a mobile application, on uh, social media channels, uh, chatbots, Anything that has really, uh, a, I would say, a virtual interaction on a different channel really is an entry point to also target those customers in those engagement channels. There's another area where uh, those companies actually see a lot of threat, and this is in the checkout uh, phase. So if you think of when you buy something online, you have to provide your credit card number and your details, and you have to do all the purchasing in, in the online environment. And so if you think of Magecart and what happened with British Airways, uh, with Ticketmaster, with Newegg, Sotheby's, all those were really breached and attacked in the checkout process, really in the online booking. And so what we do is we understand, first of all, we detect, uh, we monitor the dark web, uh, the dark net um, and also the open web and social media channels 
to identify and detect whether there are attacks or threats targeting the specific companies that we serve, our customers. And when we see that, we either mitigate it if it's, let's say, phishing websites or credential stuffing attacks that are being planned. We mitigate it either by taking down those sites or by um, uh, making sure that the uh, SOC teams of our companies are, are aware of those attacks uh, being prepared and planned to target their, their websites or their uh, online channels. And so what we do is we first of all detect the threats, those types of attacks that, are, that address uh, really our customers' end users, um, our customers' employees, um, and also our customers' brands uh, with you know, brand protection uh, services. And our platform detects it, but we also have an analyst team of cyber intelligence experts who uh, either do deeper dive investigations of those threats or actually do the actions uh, for our customers like taking down phishing sites, etc. So I know I'm, I'm guilty of this, that when I when I hear about companies like yours, I always think, all right, all right, this is one software application or one piece of hardware that you stick in, but it sounds like yours is, is built up of multiple pieces. And I'm, I'm thinking, you gave the example of like Ticketmaster, where they had that, that online process, which at the end of the day, that one ended up being tied to a script that was tied to their, uh, their live chat system, right, for support. So... For you guys, you would have had more than one way to have detected and prevented that. So it sounds like you have you have real people, which is kind of like penetration testing at that point. Uh, you know, the evaluating the network looking for vulnerabilities. But then on the automated side, how does that work? Are you guys basically like proxy traffic, where we we put you and your services in between our servers and the customer, or? Uh, is this like a, an agent that we're installing? What, what does the solution look like from the customer side? Okay, so first of all, it's not hardware. It's a SaaS platform that sits on a public cloud where our customers um, actually have, they get access to the platform, but our analysts are also the main users of this platform. And this technology platform is really a solution that is comprised of crawlers. Uh, that's a software that crawls the dark net and the deep web and the open web and all the digital assets discovers all the digital assets of our customers. They uh, monitor, they track. Uh, there's a lot of contextualization that happens also with software, with artificial intelligence. And there's a machine learning model in the platform that uh, once we define in the platform the environment, we profile our customers by, you know, let's say keywords, if, you know, the company is ASOS or, you know, like uh, Angie's List, right? So we define what are the keywords that we need to listen to that the platform listens to automatically and detects if there's uh, chatter or if there's any um, planning of a threat or attack against those specific companies in the dark net or the deep web. Um, and if there are any credentials that were already stolen or any customer data that was stolen that is now being sold in the, in the darknet, darknet marketplaces. Or think of um, credit card lists that are also being sold. Um, or uh, e-gifts and electronic vouchers that are maybe being sold. Or even if we talk about retailers, it's uh, what is called refund as a service 
services that are being uh, sold in the in the darknet in marketplaces for fraudsters to actually uh, gain some uh, financial benefit from um, executing those attacks. So this is an automatic platform. Uh, the the crawl is, is software. The analytics, again, is software. It prioritizes the alerts if you know the threat is imminent. And then our analysts also do the fine-tuning of the machine, as well as uh, interact with our customers, alert them, and also do the action for them. So, Danielle, this is great. And, and this is a really not only important topic, but obviously a very timely one, given some of the stuff that you and Don have been chatting about. So I, I just want to change the direction of the conversation for a minute. We've heard a lot about the platform, how it works, some of the magic in the black box or in the cloud, so to speak, right, because it's <laughs> SaaS-based. But let's look at this maybe from a different perspective. So I'm a customer of CyberInt. I'm a senior executive in one of your customer companies, or I'm the um, equivalent of the threat intelligence officer on your side, but I'm the IT professional who's going to interact and partner. How do you speak to the different customers in terms of the intelligence that CyberInt provides? Do you report and stratify to different levels of the organization if I'm a customer? Do I see different output? Do I have different actionable to-dos and items and monthly reports? I'm sure there's all that, but I'm sure our members want to know more about how they view your platform and how they interact. And that's what I'd like to hear about. Okay, so our uh, customers actually, this is one of the benefits by having different uh, models on the platform, whether it's threat intelligence or brand protection or phishing detection, because some of our customers are CISOs, uh, some of them are CIOs, um, some of them, as you said, are threat intelligence analysts, and some of them are even CMOs uh, for the brand protection aspect of it. And so what they get from us is an ongoing, uh, a collaborative sort of alerting system that happens also automatically from the platform itself, as well as weekly reports, monthly reports, uh, annual reports, and where the, when there's a specific um, alert, let's say, uh, think of collection one, right? This huge dump of 773 million uh, accounts. So in this case, when there's such a dump, we immediately also scan, we upload this dump on our system and we immediately scan to understand and identify which of our customers are also part of this dump. So that's something that we would be more like ad hoc interaction with our customers. In this case, it was in the level of the CISO in most of our customers. And they just really wanted to understand how their uh, company was impacted and if it was including the, included in the dump. So I hope this answers your question. It's, it's a periodical report based on the engagement level that we have with our customers. Um, but we also have some customers that we have analysts who are actually part of their own security team. And they sit on site, on prem with our customers. And they are the actual ones who, again, they use the platform and they're part of the threat team of our customers as well. So I know Don wanted to ask some, just a quick clarification, sure. kind of summary follow-up. But So it sounds like there's definitely reactive elements as things are ongoing. You're telling us and certainly encouraging me as a customer to pay attention and respond. But there's also a proactive element when things may pop up, but we're not, as a customer, aware of them yet. And so blending those two things sounds like it's a very effective solution. So I, I like that a lot. That's very important. 
So uh, for those of you tuning in, we are interviewing Daniela Palmater, uh, Vice President of Marketing for CyberInt. And uh, you know, we were just talking about some of the, you know, the, the ways that the, the customers would interact with the CyberInt platform. And I had a question about you know, vendor risk, right? Uh, one of the things that you guys help to do is evaluate vendors and determine whether or not they're you know, really, uh, we call it like mowing their side of the, uh, the yard, right? They, if they are, they're doing enough to make sure that your data is safe and secure and whether or not you should continue working with that vendor. Do you guys also help with selecting vendors in the first place? Like if I, if I said, all right, we're looking for some kind of online chat for customer support, do you have vendors that you recommend? Does it, does it go both ways? Um, I would say it's not necessarily that we have vendors that we recommend, but we help our customers evaluate whether those vendors have a high security hygiene. We actually give them scoring to uh, let our customers decide if they want to carry on interacting with those vendors. Um, in some cases, they actually use it as a negotiation element in, in a way that, you know, if you want to work with us, you have to close those and those open web interfaces that are currently, um, they're exposing you to a compromise and by that you'll be exposing us, meaning the, the, our, our customers. Um, so we actually provide a, a scoring report, um, which is a, is based on a passive um, uh, discovery of all the um, digital assets of the third-party partners, of the vendors, and really discovers whether there are uh, open web interfaces, whether where there are vulnerabilities in the software, whether you know there could be some uh, subdomains that are abandoned, that this vendor uh, forgot to close the redirection, which is an opportunity for a threat actor to purchase the subdomain and then with that use it as an entry point to that vendor and by that also compromising our customers. So the multiple uh, entry points and vulnerabilities that we help our customers understand really what is the score of that vendor and if they'd you know, want to work with them or not, this is their own commercial decision. So it's interesting because you're, you're bringing together without saying the, the buzzwords and acronyms in our industry, but you're bringing together a lot of things that not only we talk about as being fundamental to risk management, risk assessment, threat mitigation, if we talk more broadly, uh, but you're bringing together elements of a business impact and security impact analysis along with threat assessment. But you're, then you're deriving them, although it's proprietary, and I do understand it's your version, right? CyberInt's version of what that would be. But you're deriving something that we as IT professionals in the security world struggle to figure out, which is a return on security investment, right? So exactly. you're deriving for us in one form the ability to understand quantitatively, and it's really more semi-quantitatively because it really is elements of both qualitative and quantitative assessment. But you're giving us, as customers, it sounds like, the ability to understand and measure not only the impact of our investment with CyberInt, but the impact of our potential and, uh, ecosystem, our vendor ecosystem. I think that's wonderful because we struggle so much with trying to figure this out. This is one of the most well-kept secrets in our industry that people really need this data, but we, we really struggle with ways to provide it. And to tangibly hand it to a customer and say, before you make this decision and potentially take on risk that is not visible to you, that we're going to at least help you to understand logically what that may look like. It may not be everything, because we don't know everything, but it's going to certainly give you a better picture than you had before of this unknown black box that you're thinking of opening, and then you can negotiate. And I like the way that you 
explain that to us. You can use that to negotiate with your vendor and maybe have them see a better way forward. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. I really do. I think yeah. that's really impactful. Actually, I tried. Uh, thank you for this. I, I tried to avoid using too many buzzwords, but <laughs> our, <laughs> our, our platform is really a digital risk protection platform because it provides threat intelligence as well as brand protection, as well as third party uh, or vendor risk management, um, as well as even email threat management to understand really if their domains are configured properly to avoid spoofing and spear phishing really of, uh, of, uh, of our customers' uh, uh, emails, um, email communication or email servers. But the, really the idea is if you think of how we quantify it for our customers and a lot of our customers ask, because we really serve the retailers and retail banking, um, a lot of our customers ask us to help them understand what is the potential value that they get from us. Now, it could be if you think of retailers, it's not only the cyber risk, it's also the fraud uh, that they are able to prevent. So it really is, um, uh, I would say, preventing revenue loss because we already detect uh, fraud intention, uh, whether it's with account takeover that is a, a potential to fraudulent activity, whether it's carding or fraud in uh, e-gifts and e-vouchers. Um, and for uh, the additional risk uh, evaluation, it could be if you think of retail banking, if there's this very uh, uh, delicate uh, trust relationship between banks and their consumers, if they hear that there's a breach or there's a phishing uh, attempt taking place on their uh, sites, then that could break this very delicate trust relationship. And that has already a quantifiable uh, impact on the business, both in the ability to actually create uh, and, and to execute uh, fraudulent activity, as well as the ability to also uh, drive people away from this organization because then they'll just move on to a different, a different provider, a different company. So this is really the risk of churn. You know, let's uh, let's jump back to something you mentioned at the beginning of the interview, which is that Cyberint is based out of Israel, and and we've we've interviewed a, a number of security companies. Uh, I mean, Israel is turning out to be like a, a hotbed of IT security companies. Uh, I'm curious with yours because you're you're so involved in the the company's data that I mean, this is this is sensitive information. I guess if if it's already on the dark web or whatever, it's not so sensitive anymore. But but for a, a company's transactional data, like the checkout process, that is, that is very sensitive data. Uh, have you run into any obstacles dealing with uh, Western countries and, and things like regulations, GDPR, uh, data privacy? Uh, are there obstacles that you guys have had to overcome there? Or have you found ways to make sure that all the regulatory compliance is met? Well, actually, we're helping our customers meet their regulatory uh, compliance needs, um, whether it's if the fact that we are already aware that there's, uh, that there's personal data out there, so we're able to alert our customers and make sure that they protect their online channels in a, in a much better and more effective way, because we, we, in a way, we alert them that whatever is happening today isn't, isn't protective enough. Um, so our, our actually ability to support our customers with the regulatory needs 
is actually increasing uh, in demand uh, for those for those types of services. So this is actually where we we don't find any any problem as an Israeli company to to do that or an Israeli based company to do that. In fact, the the approach that we bring because a lot of our uh, intelligence analyst team they actually come from the uh, IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces um, Intelligence Units. And so there, if you think of it, they're sort of trained to think like an offensive, a threat actor. And so the ability that we bring is first thinking in the adversary mind uh, mindset. So understanding if I target a specific company, how would I target them? Which angle would I go, would I go in with? Uh, which entry points, which vectors would I use, which tools and which procedures would I take as a threat actor. So this actually helps um, our machine to be more effective because it's already coded in the platform, as well as then the intelligence analysts who then when they do the deep dive investigations, they have several uh, means to investigate, including even interacting with the threat actors on the darknet. Um, as well as actually, because they know the tools and the procedures and the techniques, they actually look for them and they hunt for those uh, TTPs or tools, techniques and procedures um, in their way to understand whether the breach has actually already happened and what is the breadth of the breach and what is the infrastructure and who is the, you know, the threat, the threat actor group, etc., etc. So all that context provides really a much more effective response and threat mitigation service uh, that actually starts from the source of thinking like a hacker and looking at an, at an organization as a hacker would. Excellent. Well, you know, as we start to wind down the interview, let me just ask you, uh, you know, do you guys have any big initiatives in 2019 or were there any other topics you wanted to touch on? Well, 2019 is a big year for us. Uh, 2019 is a year that we're also going to uh, to launch a full solution that integrates between the internal activity and the external activity. And so providing this integrated insight in an automated way on all the cyber threats and the incidents that need to be addressed is really where we're heading. So it's really just like the convergence between the digital and the physical world is happening, we're converging between the internal and the external worlds, but in the world of cyber. That sounds pretty exciting. So for our viewers, if they want to learn more and keep an eye out for when that uh, releases, where's the best place for them to go and get information? It would be on our website, www.cyberin.com, and also on our blog platform, which is blog.cyberin.com. Um, it's called The Cyber Feed. And we're putting a lot of research there, a lot of um, information about the cyber threat actor uh, activity. And uh, we look forward to interacting there and very happy also to demo and provide some sample findings, reports, anything that can help our customers or our prospects to protect themselves better in this digital environment. Awesome. Well, Daniela, uh, on behalf of our users and Adam and I here in the studio, thank you for spending the time with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. And for you, the viewers out there, thank you guys for watching. But don't go anywhere because we'll be back with more Technado after this.
Welcome back, everybody. Hopefully you enjoyed that interview. It's kind of neat. Um, I know she she wasn't very buzzword he- heavy on this one because I always look for that. Like, how, how does she work drones into this? And she didn't. Uh, but, <laughs> but, you know, solutions like these are becoming uh, – uh, more and more prevalent, and they're getting. It seems like they're getting bigger to me. Where every time we talk to one of these security providers, they have so many different offerings that it's confusing as all hell. So it's kind of nice to see all that wrapped into one service. But uh, but anyway, it was a lot of fun uh, for you guys. Uh, I'm trying to think about what else. We don't really have anything else to cover. We got through all our news. We got through our interview. Did you guys have anything else you wanted to talk about topically before we wrap up? Put you on the spot. I'm not going to talk about any um, crazy certification changes that Microsoft rolled out recently, but oh, I did yeah. write about it in a blog post on social media. You can check that out. And where is that on your uh, LinkedIn, personal LinkedIn? A personal LinkedIn, um, as well as Twitter and Facebook. <laughs> One of the topics we <laughs> what spoke about. about. MySpace? For shame. Oh, For shame. I didn't put it on my MySpace. No MySpace. She did, Although but I did then they, log they erased in. the post. So just. <laughs> disappeared all right well if you want to learn more about that be sure to check out cherokee's linkedin uh also let me remind you that at itquote tv we do a number of webinars that are completely absolutely and totally free uh which you can jump in and watch that are not as as well i mean they're fun but they're not the goofball like technado is uh they're a little more professional (laughs) i'd like to think uh if you want to go to one of those webinars go to itpro.tv slash webinars you can see the upcoming ones like uh, Mike and Cherokee, you're going to be doing Microsoft certification yeah. test prep coming up. That was just coincidental. Oh, look at that. See, you got to plug your <laughs> webinar. Uh, and then Wes, all by himself, landing your dream IT job using no, LinkedIn. Gonna, I think I'm going to be with them on that one. Oh, you're going to yeah. host it with them? Not according to the picture, I unless you're wearing I... your cloak of invisibility <laughs> for that one. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right. Well, you'll get to see a lot more Cherokee uh, in those webinars. And also on that same exact page, if you exert the muscular effort to scroll down even further you'll find all of our previous webinars you can jump in and watch those we get some really good ones on the dark web and, and other stuff are in there uh, which is a lot of fun adam is in a number of webinars i'm in several so you can check them out uh, and if you're interested in learning more about it pro tv be sure to go to go.itpro.tv technado and on that page you'll find a 30 percent off discount where you can get a, a discount on the lifetime of your subscription not just the first month but really the whole lifetime uh, you can save thirty percent. Definitely check that out. We appreciate that. That's uh, you know the the money that keeps this podcast going, um, which may or may not be of value to anyone. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Cherokee and Adam, thank you guys for being on the thank podcast you. with me. And for you, the viewers out there, thank you for watching. Be sure to tune back in next week for more Technado. But as this goes, we're going to wrap as it up the here. World turns. As, yeah, the sins <laughs> through the hourglass. Need the rotating popcorn. <laughs> I know. They, see, this is why we normally have Peter here. He does a much better job with this stuff. Because then I end up saying, <laughs> Sorry, like, Sorry, I'm definitely not a replacement for him. So. Go to my link space and FaceTime, whatever, and at me, you know, <laughs> whatever on social media. All right. Thanks, everybody, for watching. We'll see you next time.